Hello, everyone. My name is Phil Calvert, and a very warm welcome to the Financial Advisor Mastermind and Challenge. Throughout this week, advisors, leading experts, and consultants to the financial planning profession are sharing amazing insights into just what makes a world-class financial advice business. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with someone who is pretty unique in what he does. He's a financial planner, speaker, consultant, commentator, author, podcaster, and YouTuber, and he also runs Nerd's Eye View, probably the largest and most subscribed to blog for the financial planning profession. Uh, Forbes magazine described Michael Kitsis is the universally acknowledged brainiac of the financial planning world, touching tens of thousands of clients as he educates thousands of advisors each year. An investment you said a major force in the financial planning profession, Kitsis has been at the forefront of the evolution of financial planning. No pressure. Michael, how are you today? No pressure at all. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's always good to uh, talk to our financial planning friends on the other side of the pond. It's, uh, uh, it is fascinating to me how just this rise of financial planning is, is kind of happening globally. Every country has its own evolutionary steps its own regulatory bumps that have been happening lately as well but you know as i view it like technology is just taking the things that we used to do and automating them and it forces all of us to move up the line and regulators respond accordingly oh my gosh they're all giving advice we should probably regulate them that way and here we are now with this sort of globally converging uh direction towards financial planning and and what i call real real financial advice that's that's not product driven. Not that people don't end out with some products as the, the money's got to land somewhere, yeah. but it's driven by the advice and the purpose of advice. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting point. You make, uh, you mentioned technology straight away there. Um, just a couple of days ago, I got myself one of these. Oh, okay. so, uh, an Amazon echo. Um, and, uh, I won't mention her name because she starts talking to me. I was going to say, if we say her name, she will respond. She does. Um, <laughs> and it's, it is absolutely amazing. I've already started doing, um, flash briefings. Yeah. Um, so like a mini version of my podcast. Um, and somebody said to me the other day that we are at the point with, um, her that uh, we were with podcasting uh, a few years ago yeah and um, I, I subscribe to your podcast and uh, you've, you're about over a hundred uh, episodes now and yesterday was a really was just a fantastic one where you were talking to Roger Whitney who um, is building his business with podcasting Absolutely extraordinary. And I think you said at one point that in the last two years, he estimates that $50 million in assets has come through as a direct result of that podcast. And, um, and to put that in context, he, only, he had only slightly over $25 million three years ago. So like he, he 3X'd the business yeah. <laughs> in two years. He's been doing this for 25. Goodness me. How popular is podcasting amongst the financial planning profession uh, in the states still very very small here here in the u.s at least in terms of ad advisors that are doing podcasts um i really only see a few that have been doing it with any particular uh time and with any particular momentum and the kind of results that roger has had i, I think part of that is just well at least on the results end like it takes time i mean the, uh, podcasting as with almost any kind of content marketing if you want it to really drive business results, it's still at the end of the day, 
a relationship driven business and a relationship building process. Like no one's going to hear one podcast likely and say like, Oh my gosh, this is the person I want to give my life savings to. Uh, they certainly won't do that off of like a single tweet from social media. They, but, but those become opportunities to create connections, to start forming relationships. It is a sort of a, a one-way, one-to-many relationship. But one of the things that's fascinated me the most about podcasting from our end as well, and, and part of what actually drew me to the medium to begin with is from a, from a relationship building perspective, it's an incredibly intimate experience. Like for how most people listen to podcasts, I'm literally in someone's ear. I'm basically in your head. So I, I take that as a sacred duty. I don't lose being the voice in your head. But, you know, it, like it's one thing to say, hey, yeah, I was stuck in a grocery line and I saw your tweet. It was really witty, right? Like that's how we engage with social media. Podcasting just functions at a different level of intimacy because of how it's delivered. And, and I think it's something that's very underappreciated. And I mean, I say that as someone like, I've done social media marketing for years. I've done digital marketing for years. I've you know, run a blog for nearly 10 years. Like I've lived all of these different mediums in different ways. Uh, and there really is something special and unique about podcasting because of that kind of communication, intimacy, connection that gets created, even though it's, it's one way. It's not like I'm having a two-way conversation with the yeah. listeners. Like I might be having a conversation with a the guest. They just listen in but they still engage in a whole other way that we have not seen with any of the other digital mediums. Yeah, we, we have, there must be, I think about five only financial planners in the UK who are really taking podcasting seriously. But one of them is getting a guy called Pete Matthew. Uh, he's down in the extreme southwest uh, of the UK and he's getting thousands and thousands and thousands of downloads. And he says from those, he is getting pretty well every month, um, a good handful of very, very high quality leads. Yeah. He's not getting people who are phoning up and say, Pete, I heard your podcast. Uh, could you just tell me if I'm being ripped off on my credit card? Right. He's getting people who are properly engaged with this. Um, and, and I think it's something that, that people miss. You know, I, I, I often get uh, either... Uh, uh, griefed or chided a little, you know, our, our blog content, just the, our written content on Nerds Eye View, uh, to put it kindly, uh, we're, we're a little long in the word. Uh, you know, our articles are typically three to 5,000 words, which is, you know, many pages and will take most people at least 15 or 20 minutes to read, sometimes yeah. longer. Uh, and so, you know, in, in this age of like, oh, that's silly, like people don't have the attention span to last for more than 30 seconds. Like, how can you write articles that take 30 minutes to read every single day and expect uh, to get any traction? And, you know, the truth is, you're right. Like most people, particularly most consumers, will not read giant, long-form, nerdy articles like mine. Unless you're very affluent, there's a lot of money at stake, you're really smart, and you're trying to figure something out for yourself. And then you read it. And so it's like, yeah, 99% of people won't read our content, but the 1% who do are smart, motivated, and affluent. I call those really good prospects. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it, when you make content that's relevant to the people you want to serve, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. Like, that's who shows up. Mm. 
yeah. as I think Peter's finding as well. It, it, it's, it is amazing. Um, my brother is in radio. He um, has his own production company. He's also a voiceover. Um, and he's, he says one of the things about radio and audio is it's something called cut through. When you're uh, in your shower or in your car or you're having breakfast, whoever you happen to be listening to on your morning radio station, they may be broadcasting to millions of people, but it's to you. Uh, it yes. cuts through. Uh, and audio has this amazing quality as well. When Apparently, when you listen to commercial radio, when the adverts come on, 75% of us do not change channels. Whereas when we're watching TV, apparently 75% of us do change channels or we fast forward. Um, and uh, maybe it's something to do with the brain. The brain likes to fill in the bits that we yeah. can't see. Yeah, it's, uh, to me, part of what works around podcasting in particular is, is kind of that, that habit dynamic and, and just the way it gets consumed. You know, we've experimented with, with written, with social media, with video, with podcasting, as you said. I mean, we've got a pretty active YouTube presence as well. And, and you know, notwithstanding all the hubbub that seems to be out there these days about, like, video is next, video is the future. You know, we, we found it pretty empirically as we look at our stuff. Uh, video just doesn't produce results because most people really don't want to sit around very long, right? Because if it's going to be video, you have to actually sit in front of your computer. And yeah. if I lock you down in front of your computer, <laughs> I have to be amazingly interesting and entertaining in like a continuous fashion or I can't hold your attention and I'm not that interesting and entertaining. So that's not going to work podcasting is different because it, it, it require it doesn't require the same stakes, right? Like I'm not telling you, you have to sit in front of a computer, do nothing else, but focus on me and then not get bored, right? I can be in your ear while you're driving, while you're exercising, walking the dog, mowing the lawn is a popular one here where we get yeah, a lot of yeah. listeners that uh, listen to us while they're doing yard work. And so they stick with us much longer because we don't ask them to give us our full undivided attention perpetually. We just kind of chatter in their ear as they're going with some stuff that's hopefully helpful. And then every now and then the brain perks up like, oh wait, that he just said something that's really interesting. Like, let me pull my, you know, pause on the workout for a second. Like, okay, let me hit the back button. I need to listen to that piece again. Like there was, there was something there that really impacted me. Yeah. I, want, I want to go back and listen to that again. And so that's why like our engagement is higher with two hour podcasts than it is with 20 minute videos. Wow. And we, that's, that's really literally what we do. We do two hour podcasts, hour and 45 to two hours. Uh, and we have phenomenal follow through to the end, much more so than what we get for 20 minute videos for people going to the end. That's, that's really interesting. Um, in your interview with uh, Roger Whitney, he said something, I almost missed it, but uh, it was a value bomb like no other when it comes to this. He was saying he has the podcast, he does the podcast, and then it leads to a webinar. Yes. Um, and I think it said something about then it leads to a community that you could join around. around thing. Now, that I think is very clever indeed because you get to a point where most of the listeners won't actually be clients. No. But they are getting great value and they become advocates for your expertise. And so they still refer you. Yep. The, the gap that I find for most advisors, like be, 
because almost all of us have grown our businesses in all, you know, I'll call the analog worlds of, you know, one-to-one, human-to-human, right? I mean, that was how I started as well. Networking meetings and get referrals from centers of influence and get your clients to refer and all of that. Like, they're very, they're very one-to-one mediums. And so we tend to think in very one-to-one fashion, like, okay, I've got to get a prospect and I got to sit in front of them and I got to make a compelling uh, pitch and offer of my services. And then hopefully some reasonable percentage of them will come along. And, uh, you know, at least in the industry here, the famous saying was 10, three, one, uh, uh, 10 leads for three qualified prospects for one client. And it's a numbers game, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah. The, the interesting thing, the interesting phenomenon that comes from the digital marketing realm. So it, it takes me the same amount of time to write a blog post, whether a hundred people, a thousand people, or 10,000 people read it. It takes me the same amount of time to do a podcast, whether it gets listened to by a hundred or a thousand or 10,000. And so there's a different kind of scalability effect that happens where if I'm going to reach 10,000 people with an article or a video or a podcast, like, my God, I don't want to meet with all of them. I wouldn't have the time. Most of them aren't actually going to be qualified anyways. And I will blow up my business trying to meet with the huge volume of prospects that don't qualify. If I'm going to start with this idea that I might reach thousands, the first thing I then have to think about is how am I going to winnow the thousands of listeners to the few I actually really want to do business with? And so the whole nature of how you develop business then starts to change. When we're doing the one-to-one realm, it's a lot of like, okay, I'm trying to find one more prospect to get in front of, one more prospect to get in front of, one more prospect to get in front of. When I do it in the digital realm, my primary goal is not to get more front, in front of more people, uh, in front of more prospects to meet with face-to-face. My goal is to filter out how many people I meet with face-to-face mm. because otherwise I become a victim of my own success and scale that I'm talking to too many people that aren't actually qualified to do business. And so we actually spend a lot of time trying to in, in some of our funnels as well, like how do we screen people out? How do we put more information in front of them to say, here's why you probably won't want to work with us? Because if you pass the whole gauntlet of all the different roadblocks that we put up, put up and you still want to work with us, you're probably going to follow through. And in fact, we find our, our close rates in the digital context, a, a lot of our warmest leads come from the digital realm. They are enamored with us and we've never met them because I've been in their ear on a podcast for dozens of hours and they feel like they have a personal relationship to me. And now I just have to get up to speed and, and reciprocate. Yeah. How cool is that? It's uh, very clever. What I love also about what, listening to your interview with Roger was there was a real sense of him having a value ladder uh, as part yep. of his proposition. Yeah. Something high quality for free, which then takes him to something else that's perhaps another level of quality, which takes them to something else, which is even high value. We don't tend to have that um, over in the UK. It's one of my little hobby horses at the moment to try and find ways to help advisors um, offer high value. And for a very simple reason, in the old days, if someone went to a dinner party and the topic of personal finance came up and, some, and somebody says, you know, I really need to get an advisor to, to look at my retirement planning and so on. Right. Someone else at the table will say, oh, well, you can talk to my, my advisor. And we'd write it down on a napkin. Yeah. Um, and the next day, we'd pick up the phone. Uh, the, these days, there's a few extra steps that seem to get yep. in the way. Um, and when you look at many, many financial advisors' websites, I'm not sure if it's the same in the UK, in the US as it is in the UK, most financial advisors' websites look the same. So oh, we, we have a huge problem with it here. You know, we, 
we look the same, you know, it's uh, lighthouses and chairs on the beach and, and all of those traditional retirement views. And, you know, we differentiate by saying we're, we provide customized, personalized financial plans based on our credentials and years of experience, which sounds great, except every other advisor says we provide individualized, customized plans based on our credentials and our years of experience. Uh, you know, it, it's gone so far that a few years ago, uh, I literally dubbed it here in the U.S. that we are in a crisis of differentiation, mm. and and I and I really think it is actually at that level. And and the phenomenon that that begins to occur that we are seeing here is a subset of firms that really effectively figure out how to differentiate and better and better convey their value proposition start having much more rapid growth, and everybody else watches their growth rate start to flatline, and and we are seeing that separation start to happen here where a subset of firms are getting really good at marketing and bringing in millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. We've got a few really large independent firms that are doing a billion plus dollars of organic new client growth wow. in a year. And then huge swaths that are struggling to get more than one or two or three new clients a year. They may have a reasonable base, but competition is picking up and differentiation is getting harder. That's really interesting. So if you were doing the sort of state of the union address on the, on the state of the financial planning world as you see it now, um, what would be the highlights in your, in your speech? So to me, for the, the state that we're at right now, you know, broadly, I mean, I'm incredibly upbeat about opportunities for financial advice, advice value propositions, you know, there was a hubbub for a while that we were all going to get placed, replaced by robots and robo-advisors. Now we've settled down that at the end of the day, a robo-advisor is just a managed account product that happens to be delivered to do-it-yourselfers with technology, which is fine. Do-it-yourselfers weren't going to hire us anyways. Mm. Uh, and, and everybody else still wants and needs advice and needs it beyond what the robo-advisor was going to do anyways. The, so to me, there's a tremendous opportunity for advice. There's a, uh, a growing willingness to pay something for it. And our challenge I find in the industry is we are still so anchored to advice the way that it looked in the past because it was built usually around the product channels that we had in the past yeah. that we literally can't figure out what to do. So, you know, one of the organizations I helped to co-found here in the U.S. is a group called XY Planning Network. Mm. And we do, we do financial planning for Gen X and Gen Y. That's that's the X and Y and XY planning network. And, you know, if you're going to do financial planning for young people, the first thing you quickly notice is you can't charge them for assets under management because they don't have any or they have very little or here in the U.S. at least, even if they've got some, it's usually tied up in an employer retirement plan. And the way it works here in the U.S., most advisors cannot directly manage retirement plans and employers. We can roll them into independent accounts once they leave their employer, but yeah. the money's kind of stuck there when they're there. So they either don't have assets or they have assets that aren't available to manage, but many of them are making fine income and they could easily write a check, except most of us aren't built to accept checks for advice. And even if we are, we don't know how to set the fees. And then even if we do, we can't figure out what to deliver them. You know, the, the number one question I hear around doing financial planning for young people is like they, they hardly have any assets. Like, what do you do for them? You know, you mm. set them up with a retirement account, have them put a couple hundred dollars a month in, you know, get them into a reasonable fund and like you're done in 10 minutes. What do you talk to them about? 
I say, well, let me, let me see here. Um, uh, getting job, uh, managing credit card debt, managing student loan debt. We have $1.4 trillion of it here in the U.S. Uh, uh, starting to set your budget and good financial habits. Uh, then you get uh, your, your big raise when you start moving up and you've got more money and you've got to figure out more what to do. Then you've got employee benefits decisions, health insurance decisions, life insurance decisions. Then you get married. Uh, then you have kids. Then you buy your first house. Uh, then you get divorced. Then you get your second marriage. <laughs> then you get another child. Uh, then you go and decide to start your own business. And like when I look at what happens for most people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, you have major financial life events. Like every 12 to 24 months, something changes. Uh, I look at it from the other end and say like, what on earth do you do for retired clients? Like yeah, yeah. they retire. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens when you're making that retirement transition. But then once they get in the retirement transition, like nothing changes sometimes for 10 or 20 years until someone has a health event. Young people, their lives are continuously changing in ways that have incredible financial impact. But when you line up the topics that they want to talk about for financial advice, their investment accounts literally might not make the top 10 on the list. And so even when we look at our advisors and XY Planning Network, almost a third of them literally don't touch assets. Like it's not even part of their menu of services. And then for more than, a, more than half of the ones that are left, they just use a simple third-party asset management provider, takes a negligible amount of their time. They charge either no fee or a very nominal fee because the bulk of the advice is actually on the advice part. And, and I find out for a lot of us, we, just, we, we unwittingly became so rooted in the products that we did in the past that it's hard to look at financial planning through new lenses. And you have to start with what do clients actually want to talk about in the stage of life that they're in? If you just say, what keeps you up at night about your money? And it's really usually not actually a lot of the things that we yeah. tend to talk about in the industry. It's spending, it's cash flow, it's budgeting, it's family dynamics, it's job, it's career, you know, and that portfolio thing is just an afterthought where every now and then they open a statement and go, oh, yeah, I guess I should do something with this at some point. Yeah, yeah. Which all suggests to me that the, the skill set that an advisor needs to uh, help uh, Gen X and Y clients um, is actually quite high. And I would imagine that new, um, much more uh, emphasis on softer skills would be useful as well because I'm suspecting there's a hint of a not quite coaching, but there's some something like it in that role, isn't there? Yeah, there is, there is an aspect. I think I think those the standards go up on both ends. You know, look, historically, for most countries around the world, the regulatory bar to be a financial advisor was pretty low. You didn't have to know that much. You weren't trained that much, and you, and you didn't need to because at the end of the day, we were really mostly in the product sales business. Yeah. I and mean, even that, that's how I started. I was a life insurance agent yeah. uh, straight out of college. That was how I started my career. And I got training and my training was sales training and product training, right? Like learn the product we have and learn how to get someone to buy it. Yes. That was how it worked. And I, and I got to put financial advisor on my business card, but I didn't actually learn much about holistic advice and all the things you would need to know to give it nor did I actually get taught how to effectively give people advice that will actually stick, that people will take. Mm. And so now as we're starting to transition to the world of 
financial planning and actually getting paid for financial advice, I think, frankly, the bar gets lifted on, on both ends. There's, there's a higher technical competency standard because you have to literally know more about more things to give advice in a wider range of areas than yeah. just the particular insurance or investment product or channels we were in in the past. And, and the soft skills guide starts to pick up a little bit more into something that I think looks very much like coaching and counseling. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's consultants just tell you what to do. Coaches help you actually do it. And from a practical perspective, if you want to be successful as a financial advisor with clients who pay you on an ongoing basis, they need to have some accomplishments and successes, which means you have to move past the consulting phase and into the coaching phase, if only because particularly in the world of finance, there is so much information out there for free yeah. mm-hmm. online that trying to take a pure consulting role where like you're the gatekeeper of information, you know, come to me, give me some dollars. I'll lay my expert knowledge on you. That alone isn't going to cut it in the future because the flow of free information is just going to continue to get better and better. The search engines will get better. Someone will make some free things that help you navigate them even better. Like you can't win the battle of knowledge gatekeeper, but in a world where we're advising people who are human beings, you don't have to fight that battle. Because most of our financial challenges are not purely problems of information alone, right? If they were, like, I could, I could solve the world's obesity problem. I would just make a website. It would say, eat less, exercise more. Yes. And I would say, you know, solve the world's financial problems. It would just say, spend less, save more, right? Like, if, if you wanted to lose weight and you had literally no understanding of how body mechanics work, learning that eating less and exercise more helps would be very useful information. It might get you a little bit further to the goal. And a couple of people who are really effective at self-managing might make the change with that information alone. Right. Everybody else needs a, little, needs a little more help, right? Just we have habits that get ingrained. There's other dynamics going on in our lives. Like the information alone ain't getting it done when it comes to weight loss. And it doesn't get it done alone when it comes to finances. Now, you, you can't just be a finance coach without the knowledge or you'll just coach people into things that are factually wrong and will cause harm. So there, there, is a, there is a piece of both that the technical competency standards, I think, have to come up. And we're now seeing that around the world in different ways. You know, the U.S. here, it's been more voluntary. You had a slightly different version in, in uh, the U.K. with RDR. You know, Australia is now going through its own version with the FASIA standards that are lifting much, much higher. So yeah. countries around the world, I think, are realizing this, like, oh, if we're not in the product business, we're actually in the advice business, we probably need to make sure these people know a little bit more about a lot of things. And then if you actually want to be successful at that, you have to learn how to not just tell people what to do, but how to give them advice that actually gets them to do it, which is a a whole other knowledge and skill domain that we're now working our way into as we make this transition. Yes, yes. Um, If you were to, notwithstanding different firms are in different niches, or I think niches, as you say over there, um, going forward a couple of years or so, what, what are the characteristics of a financial advice firm that is thriving and moving forward and attracting more of the right kind of clients they really want? Well, if it's possible to create the perfect advice firm, what are those characteristics likely to be? Well, I think what you're going to end up seeing going forward from here, you know, the when you're struggling with differentiation, 
there's basically two ways that this goes. Number one is you just do what everyone else does, but you do it bigger at more scale, lower cost, and you win on price. Right? That's what classically happens in commoditized markets. The largest players with the most scale and the lowest cost win. And, and we certainly see a few companies here in the U.S. that are trying to push that direction. You know, do advice at mega scale with huge volume. Uh, you know, probably the biggest case in point here is Vanguard actually has an advi a human advisor service. They get labeled a robo sometimes because they are doing the advice all from uh, a couple of centralized locations. So you do it with video chat and phone calls, not sitting across a desk in a retail branch. But in the span of just two or three years, they've raised $100 billion for hundreds and hundreds of CFPs and they're charging 0.3% for human advice, not robo-advice, for human advice, which sounds mind-blowing until you think about, well, at $100 billion, when you have $300 million of cash flow, uh, it's actually quite manageable to run a human advice business with hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue <laughs> at scale. So, so you get one direction firms that go massive scale and compete on price in an undifferentiated commoditized market. Most human advisors cannot compete at that and won't, certainly not in the independent space. So if you can't be huge, your only other option is you go niche. You go specialization. Uh, there was a, uh, a firm here I heard recently that, that put it as, you have to be a behemoth or a boutique. Yeah. Some lovely alliteration. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to be huge or you have to be niche. And so financial planning practices, the future, you know, what I see are firms that are increasingly focusing down into niches and specializations. Uh, you know, we have a lot of firms here that are now evolving this direction within our XY planning network. We strenuously urge them to go this direction, kind of building, uh, building for their future. So we see people that, that, uh, that niche into particular um, uh, professions advisors for doctors, dentists. We have yep. one that specializes in pharmacists. Uh, there's one advisor here, uh, not, not within our network, but uh, that I know of. His, his niche is bass fishermen. Right. Okay. Not all fishermen, right? Because that would be too broad. Yeah. Just people who fish, fish for bass, uh, which sounds ridiculous. But then as I learn more about his story, you know, uh, bass fishing tournaments, million dollar prize purses. And then if you win, it's actually not just the prize purse, it's the bass fishing equipment endorsement deals right. that start coming in. Mm. So there's an immense amount of money that flows around the competitive bass fishing community. And he's the guy. He's wow. the guy. He grew up on a lake with a bass fishing tournament. It's the community he's been involved with for most of his life. So when he became a financial advisor, he went into that community as an advisor. And it sounds like a crazy thing, but he's 38 years old. He manages $120 million and 90% of his clients are bass fishermen. That's amazing. There's a, I think I feel there's a certain amount of coming full circle on this. Um, when I first started out in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and I used to um, meet um, financial advisors there was a lot of niching back then. They would say, yeah, well, you look after doctors or we look after lawyers yep. or we look after policemen. And that all seemed to disappear, but it seems to be coming back again. Yeah, I, I think it is on the rise and coming back again. It's, it's part of that, that differentiation cycle. You know, there, we, hmm. I think for a long time, we, we built into niches because we largely sold somewhat commoditized products. And so, right, like I, I can't differentiate by 
having a company, uh, a great product for my company because my company has like a thousand other people who sell the same product. So the only way I'm going to differentiate is I'm the one that does our company stuff for doctors, for lawyers, for dentists, for anybody that's got financial wherewithal to work with us. Then I think we went through a cycle where he said, oh, well, no, that person sells you a product. I give you holistic advice, right? Like that was the early stages of financial planning, CFPs and so forth. And so we differentiated on, I'll give you real advice that personally sells you a product. And that manifests in a lot of different ways. You have people with credentials versus people who didn't, uh, fees versus commissions, fiduciary versus not, right? It's manifest in a lot of different ways, but it essentially boils down to, I'm, I'm, I'm offering advice, they sell you a product. Now, so much of the world is coming into the advice realm, we're hitting a new stage of commoditization. And every time the commoditization comes up, we end out in the same place, be a behemoth or be a batik. And if you're an independent advisor, you're probably not going to be the behemoth. So you better start finding whatever your particular niche and specialization is going to be. And, and the interesting phenomenon from the individual advisor realm, you know, we wrote about this recently on the site. Like if you look at, at least here in the U.S., practice management studies, um, most advisors who've been doing this for 20 or 30 years have a few hundred clients. Now, a whole bunch of those are folks that they like, sold something too early in their careers, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, probably haven't seen them in five years. Then there's a bunch that they really probably only see a few year, every few years because they show up. Then there's a segment that they see regularly. And then there's a segment of those that are like really the high value clients that pay a lot of dollars that they tend to see really regularly. And when you segment that book, you find a a version of the old infamous 80-20 rule that about 80% of the profits really only comes from about 20% of the clients. Which means when you really drill down to it, most advisors can have wildly successful practices with about 50 great clients. That's really all it takes. Like 50 of your A-level clients. And in truth, a lot of advisors can be wildly successful with like 20 or 30 of their A clients, but you probably have capacity to get to 40 or 50 before you start running out of time. And so in a world where any advisor can be successful with 50 great clients, there's virtually no limit to how absurdly narrow and pinpoint focused you can get with some particular type of niche or specialization because you literally only need 50 people who have that problem that you can help, right? And, and in this internet age world, like you only need 50 people on the planet. <laughs> yeah, They don't yeah. even have to be in your city or region or country. You just need 50 people on the planet who for whom you can solve this problem, who have the financial wherewithal to pay you. And it it lets advisors get incredibly focused and boutique in very, very successful ways. The biggest challenge I just find is most advisors are afraid to go there. You know, they're, they're afraid of what happens. Like they, you know, it's sort of a a scarcity mentality. Like, Oh my gosh, if I focus on the 50 clients, uh, you know, my 50 ideal clients, all they can think about is, the other 6.99 billion people on the planet that they would you know, be losing out on uh, by focusing so narrowly. Except the truth is most of us, it's, it's not like you have a, look, if you have a steady stream of clients who just walk in your office every day and say, please take all of my money, like keep doing your thing. But for the most mm-hmm. rest of us, the truth is if you take that focus, the people you're excluding, they weren't giving you their money anyways. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't yeah, differentiated it, to them. You weren't in front of them. Like you may as well just get in front of the people you can get in front of and be awesome at them and win a hundred percent of them because you only need 50. 
yeah um of the of the firms that are sort of middling it a bit um and they're not really on fire they're not really near the top echelons of, of financial planning firms yep what is it was it that they're doing or, or shouldn't be doing what where, where should their focus be if they want to start pushing through to that next level so I, I for firms that are struggling and middling i usually see a couple of common challenges um one is this, you know, fear and unwillingness to, to get focused, to get specific, to get targeted, to get niche and specialization. You know, the, the analogy I sometimes tell, so if, like, if you imagine holding a net, like holding an actual fishing net with your two hands in front of you and saying like, I I'm going to catch me some fish today, yeah. uh, but I'm not catching as many fish as I want. So he's, I got a great idea. I'm going to grab the net and I'm just going to pull it and stretch it wider so it, it covers twice as much area. And now uh, twice as many fish will hit my net. Mm. The problem, though, if you envision an actual net, like if you take a net and stretch it out to twice the size, the holes in the net get twice as big, which mm. means double the fish hit your net and 100% of them swim through because you made the holes enormous. If you actually want to catch more fish, you don't stretch the net wider. You stretch it really, you, you tighten it up really, really narrow so that any fish who hits your net will be sopped. And then you put your net in front of a giant stream of fish. So get super targeted and go where they are. Yeah. Works a whole lot better than, oh, I'm not getting enough clients, so let's get wider. I'm not getting enough clients, so let's get wider. And again, we do this in sort of subtle, unwitting ways. The, the one that I see most commonly here is things like, oh, well, I heard that I have to get more specific about what clients I serve. So my website says, I do financial planning for individuals, couples, families, small business owners, institutions, and women. And so, right, so I've lifted this whole grouping of niches and specializations that are actually like 157% of the population, right? Like individuals and families and couples and women, like those are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah. They're all redundant and overlapping and the business owners, oh, and in case you're not a human being, we'll work with any institution as well. Like they get specific, but it's not actually targeted in any way. They just took the net and made it super wide. So what happens, uh, uh, an institution comes in, it's like, oh, well, 90% of who they work with is people besides me. And then an individual comes in and says, well, 90% of this list is not me. And then a couple comes in and says, 90% of this list is not me. And every, what everybody sees is most of who we work with are not people like you. Because that's what happens when you make the list so long. That's how you make the holes of the net so big that everybody swims through. I, I like your the bass fisherman example. Um, I mean, some financial advisors, if we press them and say, um, do you operate in a niche? Someone, some might say, well, yes, we do. We focus on um, senior executives who are nearing retirement, which I guess is a little bit more focused, but I'm suspecting you're thinking, well, maybe that's still not quite focused enough. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that gets a little bit closer, but, uh, you know, a senior executive at a family-owned company has completely different issues than a senior executive at a multinational corporation. So you can be great at one, and literally not know anything more about the other than any other, you know, random advisor off the street. And, and so you may literally not know more. You may not be able to differentiate on that. And even more so, it doesn't speak to the individual uh, prospective client, right? The advisors that we see here that get most successful in this do things like, I specialize in ExxonMobil executives. Just the one company. Uh, you know, there's an advisory firm here in our area that specializes in ExxonMobil executives. 
That's all they work with. They have over a billion dollars under management, one firm's senior executive clientele Mm -hmm. because they're the go-to for that firm. Like if you're an ExxonMobil executive, choice number one, go to an advisor you met and explain to them how all of your stuff works. Choice two, go to her. She already knows how all of it works and has already done this for everybody else in the firm and probably knows things that you were never going to figure out anyways because she's got years of experience working with your company's benefits and all the loopholes and things. And the other advisor is going to be reading your documents and trying to figure it out, which means she is both better and will do it in a fraction of the time because she doesn't have to read all of your special corporate executive compensation documents because she knows how they work because she's read every single other executives already. So that kind of specialization, like the deeper you go, the more effective it works. If only because at some point when you say, well, you, I, I do, uh, uh, you know, I have a niche for senior executives. Great. So when you get invited to do a speech for uh, ExxonMobil about their plans, and then uh, shortly thereafter, um, uh, someone from another firm contacts you and asks you to do a speech for their executives, and you have to pick one because they're at the same time, you have just picked one of your niches that's going to do better than the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you can't, you can't nurture them both. They're going to conflict at some point. So... You know, you can, you can go halfway on multiple or you can get really good at one. Yeah. And, you know, I find as advisors, we have to, we have this tendency of like, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I have to diversify. So I want to have a whole bunch of different ones at once. But the problem is that diversification only carries you so far. Like if you work at the, look at the people who have the greatest wealth, they didn't diversify. They focused on something and they were awesome at it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm conscious of your time. I just want to ask you one final uh, area. Sure. You've described yourself um, as being on a journey of continuous education um, yeah. for yourself rather than yes. educating outwards, which, which is a little fantastic. bit of each. I learn it and share it. Yeah. If, if we look forward to the look um, forward to the future and the future these days can be like next week <laughs> yeah the, the days when we used to do like, like a 10-year plan seem to be long long behind us now. yeah i don't do anything beyond three years and even those are fuzzy yeah um if for financial advisors who are really taking more and more responsibility for their personal growth their personal development what areas of, of continuing education do you think they should be focusing on given that the, the profession that they're in so I, so I look at it in a couple of different ways. You know, one is, uh, you know, if you don't have some level of, of professional designations and degrees, I would start there. Uh, up, up your game on the knowledge and competency end. Because what happens is when we're really in the business of selling advice and not products, you're in the business of selling yourself. And so if you're going to sell yourself as an asset, it's not a bad idea to invest in yourself and make your asset more valuable. Yeah, yeah. And so if you don't have some level of, of you know, degrees and designations, I, I would start there. It's kind of up the, up the competency bar. And you, well, you walk the talk on that one. You're CFP, CLU, and a whole bunch of I, other Yeah, two master's degrees and a whole bunch of uh, uh, our industry's leading designations. Uh, once you've done that, I think that the next step is starting to get out and go to conferences. Uh, you know, it's really hard to open your mind and think differently when you spend all of your time within the four walls of your office. Um, you just, you tend to fall into the same old habits and doing the same old routine. 
when you go to a conference, I mean, part of it is just literally the content and the people you meet. And part of it is just what happens to your brain when you get out of the four walls of your office and home. It literally breaks your normal routines and habits. And it forces your brain to be more open to think about things differently because you're not in your normal routines and habits. Hmm. So going to at least one conference a year just to get out of your office so that you have time and space to think differently uh, is, is really powerful. From there, uh, you know, then I think we start getting into our own journeys of what's most meaningful for you. Uh, for most advisors, I find that once they get to that level of their uh, career and professional status, they tend to go one of two directions. Either they say, okay, I've, I've got my baseline of, of competency and knowledge. I've got my skill set. Um, you know, I know who I'm working with and who I'm going after. I'm going super deep on this particular niche or clientele or specialization or whatever it is. So like you want to get really, really good at helping independent doctors managing their own medical practices, like stop mm -hmm. going to financial planning conferences and start going to doctor practice management conferences. Yeah. I don't know where they are, but I'm sure they have some. <laughs> so like start going to really learn about the people that you're trying to serve. And the good news, you'll probably notice you're only, you're like the only financial advisor there because that's the point of what happens when you're in a niche. There's no competition. You just get to go deeper in it. So either you know, go deep and start barreling down your particular niche or specialization and start building out that differentiated knowledge and skill set. Um, or I think just, I see a lot of advisors that take the approach of, uh, I'm just going to go and get some targeted knowledge to shore up where I'm weak. Uh, you know, maybe I just, Hey, you know, my clients are asking me a whole lot of tax questions and I just don't feel like I'm as good as taxes on, on taxes. I need to. So I'm going to go find a, a tax designation or, you know, I think my knowledge is pretty good, but I know at the end of the day, like I give my clients a lot of advice. They don't necessarily take it. Maybe I'm going to go to like get a coaching certification and just learn about that whole world of like, yeah. how do you give advice differently to try to get people to take it? Maybe your firm is doing well, but you're getting to the point where, most of your time actually isn't managing clients now. It's managing people because mm. you got more staff because you're in a growing firm. Maybe it's going to take a, a, a program on leadership and personal development and just how to manage people better because managing people is different than managing clients. And a lot of independent advisors never experienced that. So, yeah. you know, whatever is a, a personal betterment journey for yourself that just fills in the gap of skill sets that you need to fill in this year. Yeah. Michael, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for being with me today. It's uh, my pleasure. My really, pleasure. Thank you, Phil. Really superb. Um, some fantastic value there. So we're asking each of our uh, interviewees if they can set a, uh, a little challenge. It could be a big challenge, actually, for that matter, uh, for our viewers. And uh, it's something that they could uh, do over a week, a month, a year, or indeed at, at any time. Um, and I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear what sort of challenge you might set for, uh, our viewers. So I'll, I'll, I'll split the difference. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give a little challenge that makes a big difference. Uh, find something every week this year that can save you 1% of your time. Now, 1% of your time is... Uh, is pretty darn minuscule, right? I mean, most of us are working, uh, you know, call it 40-odd hours a, a, a week. So saving 1% of your time is like literally five minutes a day. Mm. So what can you do that saves you a couple of minutes every day? 
Um, you know, a lot of this is things like uh, lots of technology tools that are out there, you know, uh, a meeting schedule, a social media sharing button, uh, something that makes your employee reviews a little faster, uh, whatever it is. Um, you know, I love a tool called Phrase Express. It lets me type short phrases and they expand into full phrases so that I can type my emails faster because uh, certain things are templated. I just have to write that message over and over again. So I made a little template. I just typed the first couple letters and the thing appears. And, you know, most of us don't think about what happens if you just start saving a couple of minutes a day. You know, try to save like 1% of my time here and 1% of my time there. But it's just ludicrous how much it adds up over the span of a year. You know, yeah. even if you're just saving uh, a minute or two a day, like there's, uh, there's 200, roughly 250 working days in the year. So you start saving 250 minutes a year on that you're saving about four hours, you're saving half a day. Yeah. Uh, two minutes a day saves you a day of your working uh, life. Saving 10 minutes a day is a one week vacation. So, you know, we tend to try to figure out like, how do we make big changes that improve our lives? But I'm a huge fan of just continuous, small incremental changes. Uh, you know, I get a lot of questions of like, how do I, uh, how do I manage to be productive to do all the stuff that I do? Because I've got I'm a partner in several businesses and we've got the blog and the podcast and the YouTube and a speaking business. And I'm a partner in a $2 billion advisory firm and like lots of stuff going on. And this is how it gets done. Like yeah. it's not, it's not like miracle breakthroughs. It's I'm incessantly focused on what can I do this week that'll save me 1% of my time. And when you repeat that behavior over long periods of time, as we know with clients who save for investing, like, compounding is a pretty amazing thing when you repeat a good behavior over a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering when the word compounding was going to appear, but uh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. That's superb. I've been um, as well in, as well as enjoying rock groups on, on YouTube. I watch a lot of the stuff like your, your videos on, on YouTube. Um, but I've got a plug in into my browser, which allows me to speed up videos um, oh, very cool. I know a lot of people speed up our podcasts. because Yeah, you know, and you know, what's really interesting, the first time you do it, um, it it's a bit crazy. Yep. But it doesn't take long for your brain to get used to it. And I can watch your videos, for example, um, at not quite double speed, but uh, pretty close to it there. So, you know, that's, that's my... fantastic. They get shorter and probably more entertaining because <laughs> I, I talk with my hands. So if I talk with my hands at double speed, it's like a martial arts exercise. So that's fantastic. Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. You've been absolutely fantastic. Um, for our viewers and our listeners, we are setting up an online forum where there'll be an opportunity for you to join that forum where you can go through all the challenges that our guests have, uh, have put up. And you can pick and choose the ones you want to go to. But the great thing about it is you can ask questions. You can tell other people, your peers, how you're getting on. And you can even get accountability partners in there as well. So look out for the links to that. In the meantime, once again, thank you so much to Michael Kitsis for your fantastic uh, contribution today. Uh, I strongly recommend that people uh, look at your blogs, your podcasts, your videos. There is so much content that you put out there. Oh, uh, so thank you. thank you so much again, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you, Phil. And uh, best wishes to everyone. Thanks for listening in. Great. Thank you, everybody. My name is Phil Calvert, and I look forward to seeing everybody on the next video. Thanks again. Bye.